Welcome to another week of This Week in Government Enforcement. As always, I'm Jerome Thomas, joined by Tom Firestone. We've got a couple of things we want to talk about here this week. Tom is going to start us out talking about the indictment in the Georgia election matter, um, the, the election threats case. And then he's also going to talk about an indictment in the um, Belarus and Ukrainian air piracy case. And then I am going to, again, talk about insider trading because that seems to be a hot topic with the SEC, um, SEC versus David P. Forte and others. Uh, tipper tippy case with some real interesting issues that appears to suggest the further evidence of the SEC being very aggressive, bringing insider trading cases based on circumstantial evidence. But I guess, Tom, why don't you start us out, buddy, okay? Great. Thanks, Jerome. Um, yeah, two cases, the two indictments that came down last week from DOJ that I think didn't get the attention they deserved and sort of show the new directions and the creativity and charging decisions the DOJ is using to accomplish uh, Attorney General Garland's um, stated goals. The first is captioned U.S. v. Stark. And as you may remember, last June, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco announced the DOJ was setting up an election threats task force to prosecute people who make threats against election officials, obviously a serious problem. Now, last week, they brought down the first indictment uh, under this new initiative against somebody named Chad Stark. The case was the indictment was returned to the Northern District of uh, Georgia. Mr. Stark is charged under 18 U.S.C. 875C, which uh, criminalizes transmission in interstate commerce, any communication containing any threat to injure the person of another. What he did was first he went on to Craigslist in January 5, the day before the infamous January 6 events at the Capitol, he posted a message on Craigslist, which was entitled Georgia Patriots, it's time to kill, and the name is redacted in the indictment, official A, a Georgia government official, the Chinese agent, $10,000. So basically offering on Craigslist $10,000 to kill a state election official. With this, he also attached a message, which is excerpted in the uh, indictment, And pertinent part, it reads, it's our duty as American patriots to put an end to the lives of these traitors and take back our country by force. We can no longer wait on the corrupt law enforcement and the corrupt courts. If we want our country back, we have to exterminate these people. One good, loyal patriot deer hunter and camo and a rifle can send a very clear message to these corrupt governors. Militia up Georgia, it's time to spill blood. We need to pay a visit to, and then again, uh, redacted official C and her family as well, and put a bullet her behind the ears. Um, So pretty explicit stuff. This indictment is uh, long overdue, and it certainly justifies this initiative. And one can only hope that we will see more along these lines, because obviously the integrity of our democratic system rests on the election officials feeling secure in doing their job. So that's one, a totally different uh, indictment, also an unusual one that came down from DOJ last week, relates to, it's entitled U.S. v. Oleg Kazuchitz, and it relates to this famous incident last May involving the forced downing of a Ryanair jet over the airspace of Belarus at the Minsk airport so that a journalist, Roman Pratasevich, who has taken positions um, in opposition to the regime, could be forced off the plane uh, with his girlfriend and then imprisoned, which of course is exactly what happened. Now, when this happened last May, I remember being on the show and speculating that maybe there would be criminal charges coming out of this in the US because there is a statute, there's a US criminal statute, 49 USC, 46502 that criminalizes air piracy 
and it applies extraterritorially if there are U.S. citizens on board the flight. There were, in fact, four U.S. citizens on board this flight. The press release, when the Treasury Department issued sanctions against um, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, over this, they also mentioned that FBI was involved in investigating this together with their European counterparts. And I wondered whether, might, whether or not they might actually charge Lukashenko criminally with air piracy coming out of this. They didn't charge Lukashenko, at least not yet, but they did charge four Belarus government officials for orchestrating this. Um, two of them are uh, aviation officials in Belarus, and two are KGB, basically state security officers. If you read the indictment, it's remarkably detailed on how this whole thing went down. Basically, what happened is that they fabricated a phony email from Hamas, which they sent to multiple airports in Europe, saying that there was a bomb on, uh, they were going to blow up this flight, there was a bomb threat. The only problem is they sent that email after they forced the plane to come down or after they told the plane to come down, because that was obviously um, an after-the-fact rationalization. And at any rate, they came up with this whole scheme. They let the plane take off from Athens. It was on its way to Vilnius. They did not do anything with this threat before it took off from Athens, nor did they do anything when it passed over, you know, Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, or any of the intermediate countries. When it got to Belarus, they started communicating this threat to the pilot of the plane that the thing, you know, they had information that had a bomb on it. The pilot was skeptical and said, where is this information coming from? How do you know this? What code is it? And they, of course, responded, oh, it's, you know, code red, and we have information from the security services, and you better land right now. You better land at the Minsk airport, because if you go all the way to Vilnius, it may blow up before you get there. So the pilot, you can tell from, there's a recording released earlier of this, he's a little bit skeptical. At any rate, the scheme succeeded. They forced the plane down. They took Protasevich and his girlfriend off of the flight, um, locked them up. And then they actually fabricated, then they distributed this uh, email from Hamas um, to various airports, which was, of course, the justification. That was where they said they got the information there might be a bomb. And then they fabricated documents, fabricated evidence after the fact in order to co cover up the scheme. Now, where does all this information come from? That's what's really interesting in this uh, indictment. It comes from somebody who was identified as ATC-1, Air Traffic Controller 1, a cooperating witness, the guy at, who was basically directed by the four defendants to do all of this and to communicate with the Ryanair pilot. So somebody in Belarus Air Traffic Control, somehow, presumably he's out of the country, I hope he's out of the country, got out of the country and has been cooperating with the FBI and provided all of this information on how the scheme went down. And hey, they, Tom, real quick. Did they say how they got the guy in the air traffic control tower? No, of course, that's not oh, the okay. indictment. I don't, think, I don't think that information's ever going to come out. But it's okay. fascinating. The indictment refers to his information um, and also refers to recordings made by ATC-1 of the events as they unfolded inside the Minsk air traffic controller. Uh, a control center, which recordings ATC-1 later provided to the FBI. So this guy somehow got out of Belarus, made recordings of some of these conversations, provided them to the FBI, and that's why we have such a detailed description of all of the communications as they were happening in real time and the attempts to cover this up after the fact. So very bold indictment out of the Southern District of New York. These guys, of course, are never going to be prosecuted. They're never going to leave Belarus. We, of course, don't have an extradition treaty with Belarus, but symbolically, it's important. One thing I want to come back to, though, is the question of whether or not they may charge Lukashenko with this. 
Um, he now ATC1 presumably did not have direct communications with Mr. Lukashenko about this and cannot provide direct evidence against him. On the other hand, I am sure they could have expert testimony to say that something like this could not happen without the active participation and approval of Mr. Lukashenko. So whether or not they would indict him based on that kind of circumstantial evidence, I don't know. That would be extremely an extremely bold charging decision. There's also, of course, the question of head of state immunity. Would he, as the president of Belarus, be entitled to head of state immunity? Not clear. The doctrine of head of state immunity provides that that immunity only applies to legally recognized heads of state acting in their official duties, in their official capacities. Now, maybe this is official capacity, but not clear that Lukashenko is the officially recognized head of state of Belarus. In fact, after the protests in August of 2020 um, and the rigged election, the State Department issued a statement saying the United States cannot consider Alexander Lukashenko the legitimately elected leader of Belarus. The path forward should be a national dialogue leading to the Belarusian people enjoying their right to choose their leaders in a free and fair election under independent observation. Now, I'm sure that when they made that statement, it never occurred to them that might be offered as a reason why the Justice Department could indict Lukashenko, but that is the official State Department position. This, of course, is how they've managed to charge Maduro in Venezuela. He considers himself the president. He's acting president in Venezuela. We do not recognize him as the legitimate president, so he doesn't have head of state immunity. On those grounds, also, what he's been charged with is drug dealing, which is no argument that that is a legitimate function of the head of state. Here, there might be a question Lukashenko would say, well, I didn't really know. I thought we had a security issue, um, so therefore this was in my official capacity. But I think he would have to contend with this uh, State Department position that he's not the officially um, recognized head of state. So any rate, I think it's unlikely they will charge him, but it, this indictment certainly raises that possibility. Wow, fascinating stuff. Uh, scary stuff um, on both counts, but, but fascinating stuff. Thanks, Tom. Uh, so I want to talk about an insider trading case, an SEC insider trading case. And by the way, there was a parallel federal criminal indictment uh, as well. But the, the SEC case, SEC versus David Forte, John D. Jonas, and Gregory P. Manning. It's an insider trading case, a tip or tip E case. There are a couple of wrinkles here that I want to uh, really focus on, which shows how aggressively the SEC is pursuing insider trading cases. Um, bringing cases on circumstantial evidence, which again is not new, but there seems to be a, a sense that I'm picking up that the SEC is being real aggressive here and bringing insider trading cases, you know, based on aggressive both legal theories and based on aggressive use or reliance that they'll be able to prove through circumstantial evidence at trials, uh, key evidentiary facts necessary to prove the elements. What's this case about? This is a case that involves the tipping of material non-public information by uh, Mr. Forte to two childhood friends, Mr. Jonas and Mr. Manning, who then traded in the securities of Linear Technology Corporation in advance of a July 2016 announcement that Linear was merging with analog devices. Uh, the SEC alleged that the three uh, individuals, the three different defendants, were friends who grew up together and regularly traveled together, including making a trip to Martha's Vineyard in the summer of 2016. Critically, both Jonas and Manning allegedly knew uh, uh, David Forte's brother uh, and knew he was an executive. He was the chief information officer at Analog. And, and that, that brother seems to be the place where the SEC 
and the Department of Justice are alleging that the insider information came from. So um, the two defendants traded in options of linear technology in advance of July 26, 2016. And then on uh, July 26, 2016, a news article reported rumors about a merger between two companies. Analog and Linear then issued a joint press release announcing the execution of a merger agreement shortly thereafter. Um, the stock closed, the stock of uh, Linear closed at $62.49 after the merger was officially announced, which was a 29% increase over the, the prior day's closing price. Quickly, though, before we start talking about this, and I realize we actually never really step, take a step back. Um, let's talk about the elements of tipper-tippy liability under Dirks. So in order for tipper liability, so that's the person who gives the tip to arise, the tipper needs to have had a duty to keep material non-public information confidential. The tipper needs to have breached that duty by intentionally or recklessly relaying the information to a tippy who could use that information for securities trading purposes, and that the tipper received a personal benefit from the tip. Remember personal benefit. So that's tipper liability. Tippy liability under Dirks. Um, the tipper breached a duty by tipping the confidential information to the tippy. The tippy knew or had reason to know that the tippy improperly obtained that information. For example, that the information was obtained through the tipper's breach and that the tippy, while in knowing possession of that material non-public information, use the information for trading for uh, the person's own use or for subsequent tipping to a downstream tippy. So let's talk real quickly here about the friends with benefits test, right? Because everyone, when you talk about insider trading, it's always about, well, what would I get as a tipper? What the heck would I get by tipping? And the Supreme Court uh, in U.S. v. Solomon said, look, the personal benefit to the tipper doesn't have to be a concrete pecuniary benefit, a, a, a bag of cash or a transfer of cash or some other identifiable benefit. Instead, under Solomon, liability can be established if a tipper provides uh, material non-public information as a gift to a trading relative or friend. And so what you see, Tom, is an insider trading cases that the SEC, tried, the, the DOJ, try to bend over backwards to establish a, either a relative uh, connection or, in most cases, a close friend nexus. Because if you can establish that close friendship, um, you are then able to rely upon what's called friends with benefits test. I think I heard that in Clueless or something back in the 90s, and I can't believe it's actually you know popping up in Supreme Court jurisprudence. But then again, uh, here we go. So let's talk about uh, what the SEC alleged from the tipper standpoint. So the SEC alleged that the source of the information uh, to the tippies was David Forte, who the SEC claims misappropriated material non-public information about the acquisition from his brother, who was then Analog's chief information officer. Uh, the SEC says that he then passed that information along to Jonas and Manning, both of whom subsequently purchased linear securities, and that Jonas subsequently recommended linear stock to a business associate. They then went on and, and traded call options and thousands of shares of stock and accounts that they owned or controlled prior to the announcement. So this is all about how did the MMPI go from inside to outside, right? That's what this case is largely about. The SEC alleged that analog CIO, again, uh, Forte's brother, first learned MMPI, the MMPI, that analog was in negotiations to acquire linear 
on June 22nd, 2016. The SEC alleged on that day, Analog submitted a final offer to acquire Linear for $60 a share. So follow me here, guys. So after learning of the proposed merger, the, the CIO brother was involved in performing due diligence and planning for the integration of Analog and Linear's IT systems, coordinating IT resources related to the announcement, um, the acquisition. And within this, the CIO brother was also involved in a number of other calls, as you would expect as someone who's the CIO of one company that's going to merge from another. However, let's talk about how the SEC shows that information went inside to outside. They allege that approximately that on July 17th, 2016, in a phone call lasting several minutes, Forte obtained the MNPI about the merger from his brother. Now, the SEC doesn't say how he got it or, or they say how he got it, a phone call. They don't say what the MNPI was. They don't allege any specific words. There are no quotes, Tom. It literally is a phone call um, with suspicious timing because the SEC says that approximately hour after Forte's phone call with his brother on July 17th, Forte then calls one of the co-defendants, Jonas, and tipped him to buy linear stock. The SEC alleged that there were two more conversations between Forte and his brother a few days later on Thursday, July 21st, 2016. The SEC doesn't specifically allege that any MMPI was conveyed on either of those calls on the 21st, but they do say after the first call on 21st that Forte called Jonas again. Um, and at that point, shortly after, Jonas called his brokerage firm to try to get additional shares of stock to be purchased. So again, where is the duty here, right? Because you have the brother who let's, the CIO brother, let's take it on, on good faith that he knew about the acquisition. But where is the duty um, to keep this confidential? Well, the SEC alleged that Forte and his brothers, the CIO, shared a relationship of trust and confidence. They summarily claim based on their history, pattern, and practice of sharing confidence as brothers that Forte knew or should have reasonably known that his brother expected Forte to maintain the confidentiality of any material non-public information he obtained about the merger from his brother. So they, they allege there was a duty based on a familial relationship. But again, what I'm struggling with here is what exactly was told? What exactly did the brother tell uh, David Forte about the merger. They're, they're asserting that there's a, a, a relationship of trust and confidence. We can put that to one side. But again, the, the evidence of the actual MMPI, what specifically was actionable and traded on, and that comes to play later on, but the SEC has not alleged what that MMPI was. They then, so the SEC then says, okay, on the passing of the MMPI, on July 17th, as we said, 2016, an hour after Forte spoke to his brother and first allegedly learned of the MMPI, Forte called Jonas. Now, Jonas said that on that phone call, that first phone call on the 17th of July, that Forte recommended that Jonas buy linear stock, describing it as, quote, a good buy. So again, it appears that Jonas is acknowledging a phone call and acknowledging that him and Forte spoke about uh, linear. Um, and then the SEC then says that, you know, subsequent to that phone call, Jonas deposited cash into a brokerage account that had been dormant for approximately a year and had a very small balance before and really hadn't accessed that account, but that, that, that account then became subsequently reactivated. So what the SEC is trying to establish by all this is you have a phone call with somebody who spoke with their brother 
uh, shortly before that. You hadn't traded in this account in over a year. It had only $500. Then all of a sudden, miraculously, you dump $60,000 into account and you try to buy linear call options. What I'm trying to figure out, though, and, and what's still not clear to me, Tom, is how Jonas could have known or is alleged to have known that the information that Forte gave him about linear was somehow obtained through some breach or, or misappropriation of MMPI. The SEC makes a big deal of saying Jonas knew that Forte's brother was the chief information officer, but again, of analog. So how Jonas knowing that his brother is the CIO of analog, how that connects back to a recommendation of Forte to Jonas to buy linear, right? It's like, it's this weird sort of bizarre tipping triangle, but there's a, a, a logical inference. And again, this is how far the SEC is pushing circumstantial evidence. They're willing to take the risk, it appears in litigation, that somehow, some way they'll either get evidence that connects the, the linear to analog gap that I've identified, or that a jury listening to these facts will make a real will make an inference based on all other evidence that the phone conversation between the two brothers and then between um, Jonas and Forte on that call there was more information specifically about why linear was the good buy. What were Forte's buying patterns in the past? So he he had been a regular. Presumably he's he not going to. He wouldn't have done this unless he had reason to believe that he was getting a reliable inside tip, right? Well, he had purchased call options for years. He'd been a, a, a call option investor for 20 some years. And they make some reference to how he hadn't purchased linear securities in some period of time. But again, he it's not like this guy had never, it's not like he was my grandma, right? And all of a sudden you know, tomorrow wakes up and buys call options. You know, he, he seems to have been at least a sophisticated enough investor that he knew how to and the purpose of call options. Now, I think what the SEC is saying here, Tom, is that, look, when you speak with a, a longtime buddy who tells you this company's stock is a good buy and you go out and buy it based on nothing else and you know his brother is the CIO of another public company, we're willing to take the leap that you got something more in that call that nobody right now has a vested interest in telling us, but we will we'll take that risk at litigation. And again, well, and also, how is he going to, that puts the onus on him to take the stand and say, oh no, here's what we talked about. I mean, he sort of has to deny that at trial and come up with a plausible explanation. And then he's opening himself up to cross-examination where he yes. could be slaughtered. So I, I you know, just as a, as a lay person hearing this from the outside, I don't think that that's, it's circumstantial. I agree with you, but I think most people would think nobody's going to make that kind of trade knowing about the brother relationship that somebody's going to assume that they're getting inside information. No, you know, no, absolutely. Abs so, so Tom, I, I sort of call this, right. I, this is like the Thanksgiving dinner table discussion, right? It's like, you know, something that our family members, cause we're lawyers and we do what we do. They would ask, I heard about this case. What do you think? And, and, and you might have half of the table who says, I can't believe they're going to put this guy in jail for something where they can't even show that a conversation took place about what they're saying happened. And then you have the other half of the table literally saying, what else do you think? Come on, guys. Right. I mean, this, this, where else could he have got it? He had a phone call 
there's no explanation for why an hour later then he goes out and, and, and starts trying to buy the stock. And I think that's what the SEC is doing here, right? And I don't think it's just in this case. I think the SEC is willing to take the take the bet that that one half of the table that I formerly described is going to be the preponderance of the jury and is going to be able to win the day for them. I think also once they look at it and they start discussing, it's just like, are you really going to make, you know who the guy's, he's calling you up, you know where his brother works, then you go out and you make this big investment, you know, it sounds to me like he had, people don't do things like that unless they have a pretty good idea that they're getting some, you know, special information. Yeah, look, it's, you know, and for Manning, the second tippy, it's a, it's a little bit worse for him because he not, he had the same kind of call with Forte. Uh, and then he testified that, you know, Forte described uh, Linear as a good bet and, quote, implied a merger between analog <laughs> and linear. And then um, maybe you know, the, 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 the complaint further alleges that Manning gave weight to Forte's recommendation because he knew Forte's brother worked at analog. And so he kind of put two and two together. So I'm reading these SEC's allegations about the second tippy, um, Manning. And I'm saying, okay, that to me is probably where 90% of the Thanksgiving table shakes their head and says, yeah, I could see why the SEC is taking this, this, this bet at trial. I think it's a little different for um, Jonas, but I think we're talking about three childhood friends that seem to be thick as thieves by all accounts, um, or certainly according to the SEC's allegations. And so as a result, you know, they're willing to bet that Forte gave the same information to Jonas that he gave to Manning. And they already have Manning on record saying that Jonas or that, that Forte went further with him than uh, Jonas is saying Forte went with him. So I, I think they're willing to Manus, this all together. It sounds like Manus basically gave them what they needed out of his own mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, and by Manus. the way, by the way, Manning paid Forte after the fact with under, under circumstances that, you know, thanks for the stock tip. So again, um, if, if I'm the SEC, I look at this and I say, well, I, I never want to say it's a straightforward case, but but it seems to be sort of your pattern, you know, your typical insider trading case for Manning. Some interesting evidentiary wrinkles for Jonas, but I still think in the in the totality of this, the SEC is willing to take um, to take this risk. But again, this goes back to people who don't do what we do for a living are shocked when they hear how aggressive the government is on insider trading cases. And the reality is they're willing to look at phone calls. And you know, the SEC makes a big deal about how, well, on the day the merger was announced, you know, the, the, the co-defendants had like multiple calls amongst each other. The inference being, well, why would you be having multiple calls on the day the merger announced unless you were giving some telephonic high five to one another about, hey, slam dunk, great, this is awesome. And again, the SEC isn't saying that, but you know that's sort of what they're setting up because it's a good story and it's a reasonable inference. Well, especially if Manning testifies. Manning testifies, here's what he told me. That creates an inference that Jonas told the same thing, or that um, Forte told the same thing to Jonas. So, you know, Manning kind of, you know, hasn't given himself much option but to cooperate here, given that he already gave it up. So seems to me with his with the phone records, the circumstances and Manning's testimony, they've actually got a strong case against. Yeah, him. That, that's I, Tom, I think that's why there's a federal indictment here, right? Because of, of the circumstances you, you, you suggest. Um, so I think the SEC case will get stayed unless there's an immediate resolution or a plea, which I, I'm not aware there is in the federal criminal case. But again, fascinating stuff. And it's really more of a lesson for people out there 
who, if you're not following the way the insider trading trend is going at the uh, the U.S. Attorney's offices and the DOJ or in the SEC, they are being aggressive. They are, they are pushing theories based on circumstantial evidence, which they always have. And, you know, I don't want people to be caught at unawares or surprised that the government is looking at things and shading them in the light least favorable to potential defendants, because that certainly is what we are seeing they're doing here. In other cases, the case of out we talked about last week, aggressive legal theories, the government is being aggressive on insider trading cases. And don't be surprised if they continue to be aggressive. Which is what you had predicted at the beginning a year ago at the beginning of this administration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So fascinating stuff. Uh, awesome. Love talking about insider trading. Um, well, Tom, you and I got to run for another call. We're uh, three minutes late for right now. So guys, with that, we're going to send you off to uh, gathering crowds and we'll talk to you next week. Take care, guys. Thank you.